123. This is called a Psalm of Ascent. It was intended uh, as people, God's people during the time of the existence of Israel. As they went up to worship together, they would have to travel. They would often travel in large group and they would, uh, groups and they would worship as they traveled. Uh, this was actually set to music. We don't have the music any longer. We just have the Psalms. Uh, when you read some of these, through these Psalms of Ascent, it's, it, it's kind of hard to believe in our culture uh, that these songs were actually sung because they're kind of, some of them are reflecting very difficult questions and times uh, for the people of God. Uh, I can remember uh, when I first got exposed to the Psalms. I came to faith when I was 19 years of age on a college campus, a university campus, and I was a skeptic, a non-believer, and uh, we were almost immediately immersed into a church that was exceedingly young. And I had not grown up in a church with a lot of young people. There were young people, but there weren't a lot of young people. And uh, it, it, was, it was awesome. And almost always we studied uh, the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul, uh, sometimes the Gospels, the book of Acts. And, and the focus was, you know, that God had done this wonderful thing by giving us his son, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the world was perishing, and we had the opportunity to get out and engage people with the gospel. And so the group that we were with, I mean, the worship was exciting, and uh, the gospel was exciting. And we were a highly motivated group during that time uh, to, to, to really get out and, and engage the world. And um, two years into that, uh, my fiance and I, uh, later on, my wife, we decided, I began to sense that I was being called into ministry and I, my academic uh, trajectory there at that university wasn't going to get me where I needed to go. So I transferred to another university, uh, which was back uh, home. And the dilemma that we had, which only, was, uh, only became even greater after we got married, was uh, we were living close to both sets of parents. And we had this uh, sinking feeling that if we chose my parents' church, that would be very offensive to the McCrackens. If we chose the McCrackens' church, uh, which, uh, frankly, we didn't like anyway, but if we chose that, uh, you know, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be, you know, uh, we wouldn't, we'd be personas non grata, you know, over at the house because we had chosen, you know, my in-laws, my future in-laws. And so uh, we, we kind of were looking, we were in desperation. We chose my grandmother's church. And uh, now my grandmother was, was uh, gosh, she was, she was probably in her 70s uh, even then. She was an elderly lady. She went to a church that had a lot of uh, seniors in the church. And, and the pastor was ancient. I mean, he was really, he's probably 50. He was really, really, really old. And uh, he began to do something. He had this propensity to, to circle back around and preach out of the Psalms. And, and, and to be honest with you, I kind of I grew to hate the Psalms. Uh, I, 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 I really almost feel like I needed toothpicks at, at every service, you know, just to prop into my eyes so I wouldn't look disrespectful as he preached because uh, the Psalms at that point in time in my life as a 20-year-old just didn't seem all that relevant. You know, we, we, the church that I'd been involved in, we, we never prayed for heart disease. We, we never prayed for cancer. I mean, we were just, we were all at a place in a time in our life where, where we were not cognizant of, of what life 
life would bring in the future. And so uh, when, when this pastor would preach the Psalms, uh, what, it, what it seemed like to me is the Psalms were, was comprised and written by people who had lots of problems, lots of problems. And at that point in time in my life, I, I, I didn't really think I had any problems. It turned out I had lots of problems, but I didn't think I had any problems. And any problem that I had, you know, I once, I, I felt like I had the physical and, 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 and maybe even the intellectual resources to overcome those issues. And then I'd become a Christian. I now had the supernatural. God was on my side. So, you know, the psalm sometimes can just be almost be a lament. Uh, of people who are facing adversity and problems. And then a second category is, is that the Psalms seem to be written by people who had questions without answers. Well, I was 20 years of age. I, I had all the answers. I didn't, I didn't need, I didn't need to, you know, hear somebody else at a, at a different stage in life uh, pontificate about how, how, how life sometimes, even as the children of God, uh, didn't have answers. Uh, now, now I'm 68 years of age, and I love the Psalms. I love the Psalms, and and there's not a morning that doesn't go by that I don't read in my morning study. You know, I sequentially read different books, and I'm always in the Psalms uh, because it always seems like, uh, you know, the reality is, and you've probably heard this before. Uh, you're here this morning, and so you're either in a storm, uh, you're coming out of a storm and what you don't know as you come out of the storm is you will quickly go back into another storm uh what what, what you soon learn about life is that the fact that we are those of us that are believers and followers of jesus uh, do not eliminate nor seclude uh, us from the difficulties and challenges and dilemmas that that everybody else in life faces in 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 some ways in some ways it exacerbates those issues uh, especially in America today where there's a branch of the church that says, you know, if you have faith and if you just believe, God will deliver you every time. Sometimes he does deliver you, but more often than not, especially as you move through life, he, he delivers slowly and sometimes he doesn't deliver at all because he has other purposes. And, and so we find ourselves in the state of Psalms 23. And it's just very, before we get into the Psalm, just a very his, just quick historical background, background. Most theologians, not all theologians, uh, surmise that but this, this person who wrote this psalm was a servant or a slave. And, and they were high up, uh, which was a good position actually to be during this generation, because uh, once you were in the king's court, that meant that you ate and you, you received, you were under the king's authority, you were under the king's provision, you were under the king's protection, and you and your family ate from the king's table, and starvation and famine and illness was always a real problem in this generation. So wh whoever wrote this was somebody that was under authority and w was looking to that authority, often would have to look to that authority uh, for whatever needs they had. And, and, and what most feel like is this was probably written by Nehemiah. And it, there's a book in the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, and, and it's called Nehemiah. And what we know is that uh, the Israelites uh, had been carried off into captivity uh, by Babylon, Babylon, and they, were, they served as servants and slaves uh, for 70 years. 
And what Babylon did is what we're seeing going on in the Ukraine today. Uh, you know, in other places when conquering uh, armies or kingdoms come in, they will often depopulate people and they'll send them to other places and then they'll bring other people that have been defeated and they'll populate that, that country. And so they depopulated Jerusalem. They destroyed uh, the temple where the Jews were to worship. They, they brought other people who spoke other languages so the kings of Babylon could control them and the Jews were carried to Babylon to serve and uh, again it, it lasted for 70 years and for 70 years uh, the people of God basically were slaves and they, they prayed for God to intervene and uh, for 70 years you know God didn't answer and so Nehemiah had this, this position of being high up in the court and he was serving the king and at some point in time evidently people who came and spoke to the king or Xerxes, the king of Babylon, uh, Persia at that time, uh, they would have to get through uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah. And some, some, some Jews came uh, back from Jerusalem and, and they, they described the horrible estate of the situation. Uh, the, 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 I mean, everything was in ruins, everything was destroyed. And so uh, Nehemiah got very discouraged about the situation and he began to pray. I mean, uh, he knew, he, he, again, he knew what it meant to be a man under authority, uh, to be out of control, to have no resources, uh, not, nothing that he could do but pray. So he began to pray to God, and, you know, his prayer is there in the first chapter of Nehemiah, where he says, God, you know, I'm in a terrible situation. My people are in a terrible situation. W would you do something about it? Well, he always was in the king's presence, and the king began to notice that he had a different demeanor about him. He was discouraged, and so at some point in time, he asked the Nehemiah, evidently they had a great relationship. Uh, Nehemiah, what's going on? He said, well, these people were coming through and they told me about the horrible circumstances of, of my heritage, my people. And, and, and the king said, hey, why don't you, under my authority, under my provision, under my protection, why don't you go back and, and you kind of rebuild that place of worship for the Jews and you can carry some people back. And so uh, Nehemiah, of course, thought that was a great idea. And so he went back, but we went back, all the people that had been resettled there, different ethnicities, different groups were very intimidated by, by the fact that these Jews were coming back. And so they began to oppose them. They began to ridicule them. They, they looked down on these Jews because essentially they were still slaves and they, and they held them in contempt. And contempt, and so uh, the Jews really couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't, they couldn't lash out. All they could do is to continue to do their work and just trust God. The whole book of Nehemiah is is basically how to survive under extreme uh, opposition with with contempt and with adversity uh, going uh, coming against you, wh wh whatever stage or situation that you find in life. And so uh, it's a very short psalm, Psalms 123. And, and, and let me. Read that to you and I think it kind of makes sense and you can see where the psalmist is coming from I lift my eyes to you the one enthroned in heaven and so the first thing I, I want you to notice as we get into this text is 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 what Nehemiah is saying is I'm looking to you God because I'm I, I have no control I have no control one of the greatest cultural myths in America today is that you're enough you're enough we're enough we have enough resources. We have enough capacities. Uh, we, 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 are, we are sufficient for whatever. I mean, a lot of our, even our advertisements 
on television today is, is some type of ego promoting, you know, kind of rallying, you know, buy this product, do this thing, because we know that with this, you plus this, whatever you buy, whatever you purchase, you will be enough. I saw something the other day that really broke my heart. It was in one of these shootings where some children uh, were shot in one of these mass shootings that are going on in America, and, and somebody had given the parents uh, a coffee cup. And on that coffee cup, they had written to these parents that had lost a precious child. They'd written one of these American cultural myths, and it said, you are enough. You are enough. And, and it broke my heart. It really broke my heart because I knew that that mother and that father at that moment were not saying, you know what? We're enough. We've got enough resources. We're, we're fine. We're going to get through this. It's not any big deal that this child, this life that offered so much promise and brought so much joy into our home, now they're gone, senselessly evil around us, everywhere, darkness. Oh, but I'm enough. And so what, what Nehemiah is doing in, in the beginning of this prayer is he's basically, we're going to see the problem because he gives the solution such as it is before he gets to the problem and he, he basically, he's saying, God, we're not enough. We're not. We're, we're, we, we found ourselves in a situation where, where, where people, enemies have come against us. The situ circumstances are more than what we can do. But, but he also at the same time, even in his statement of saying, I, we're out of control. We're, we're facing an enemy that, that is bigger than us, more powerful than us. He's saying, but, but you, Lord, the one who is the sovereign king of heaven, who has all the authority and all the power, Lord, we're looking to you. Now, this, this psalm begins and ends with something that a lot of us in America wouldn't like. The beginning of this psalm is look, and the end of this psalm is look. He's, he's, he, he's in what we would call today, for an extended period of time, you know, God's waiting, waiting room. So he says, I lift my eyes to you. I'm out of control to the one enthroned in heaven. And then he goes on with his own personal experience, like a servant's eyes on his master's hands. There's nothing I can do. Like a servant's girl's on her mistress's hand, so are eyes on the Lord our God. So he's, he's describing a situation where he's basically saying the resources are not sufficient for the task at hand. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been there? If you haven't, you will be. Even though we are the God, God's children, even though we are those who are comprised of the kingdom of God, those of us who are following Jesus this morning, life is such that the circumstances will bring us into a place where it seems that we are opposed by enemies that overwhelm us. Now, in, in the world where we've had the privilege of living and serving in other places where people were persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, if you were to go to China, they're persecuted. I can remember being on the universe, university campuses, and the university campuses were filled with Bible studies of Chinese students who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ and one of the people that was leading me and guiding me was saying now all these young men and women that have come to faith in Christ they've just lost all their jobs just, just by the fact by the reality that they are now confessing not the communist party as the king of the world but the Lord Jesus Christ they no longer they no longer will be taken upon graduation and put in those lucrative state jobs they've just lost their jobs and I can remember watching those Chinese students study the Bible and worship God and go out into their university community sharing the good news of the gospel I mean it was, it was life transforming but they 
they were, they were facing a life of persecution. If you go anywhere in the world today, places in Africa, places uh, in the Middle East, places in Asia, uh, that God's children have always faced persecution. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing new about that. Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to face persecution. And in the case here, it says essentially it is, it, it's a group of people that are, fa that are persecuting God's children. And I think a lot of times uh, as Americans, as we see our culture change and there's more and more opposition and there's more and more adversity, uh, we're, we're sometimes we're shocked, we're taken aback, we become timid because we think, well, if we're God's people and we've got the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they ought to be ready to embrace this good news and wait welcome us with loving arms, but, in, but instead, we see this rejection. We see this opposition. We see this adversity. So, so what happens when, when people hold us as Christians in contempt because they demean us or they see us as lesser or they see us as problematic and all the, you know, the slander that goes with that saying we're this or we're that, we're absolutely, we're absolutely you know, when, when you look at the life of Jesus, we're none of those things that they're claiming that we're things, but that's the, that's the way uh, persecution works. You know, as a pastor, uh, I, I've noticed that there are three types of people who are against or oppose or uh, persecute the children of God. And I've been two of these. <laughs> I've been there. I I've been on the other side. And, and the first is the comfortably immoral. Uh, I grew up in church. Uh, I walked away from church. I rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, ca I can remember being on that university campus, stoned out of my mind, walking across that campus. And, and at different times, students would approach me and begin to share the gospel. And I found that highly offensive. <laughs> I, I can remember, you know, in my, my drunken estate, somebody coming up to me and beginning to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my reaction was, oh, I'm a baptized Baptist. <laughs> Uh, I mean, well, get out of my face before I slap you down. I, I can remember being angry because somebody was challenging me that there was a God in heaven who was sovereign and that I was living my life because of the way that I was living in a state of rebellion against him. And people do not like to hear that, do they? <laughs> So, so, so there's many people in our country today that, that will reject us, that will persecute us, that will slander us, that will look down on us simply because they're, they're very comfortable in their immorality. And then the second category, I, I would say, are those who are pseudo-intellectuals. And I, I was one of those too. And, and, and that's a person that says, basically, I, I am infinite. I have the knowledge of all things. And one of the things that I know with being all-knowing such as I am, as I was when I was 20 years of age, is that, that there's no God. And, and many of these people I, I've run into the, in the educational system, and I've run into the university system, and they, they will attack those people who have grown up in the church who have, you know, just kind of a simple faith and they haven't yet learned how to intellectually defend themselves. You know, I've learned over the years, uh, 
you know, the whole issues of irreducible biologically, biological complexity. And it, it's amazing when I get into an argument with an atheist or somebody, or not an argument, but a discussion uh, with somebody who's not a believer. And, you know, their eyes just gloss over when you, you present them with the facts of the way uh, that we live in a carbon-based university, universe and, and the, the impossibility that things exist the way they exist without an engineer, without a creator. I had a, a guy after the first service who came up and said, I was an atheistic engineer, and that was the argument of my life for 20 years before I came to faith in Christ. In Christ. And we, we all have our times of, of, you know, kind of debate about whether or not because of our circumstances, whether or not there is a God. But one of the things that has always gripped me is, is the problem of not only irreducible complexity, but aesthetics. You know, well, why do we live in a world with beauty? If everything is nothing more than the result of random chaos, I mean, basically, just that the universe had gas one day, and all of a sudden, we have sunrise with colors, and we have trees that are green, and we have song, uh, songs to be sung, and we have food that tastes good, and, you know, the, the winters, the winds, and the smells, and all the good things that God has created. And sometimes I have one of those Romans 1 moment where I, where I say, God, where are you in all this? And I walk outside, and, and I see all that he's created, and I see his beauty i taste his beauty i experience his beauty and i know that even though i don't know what god is doing in the moment i know that there's a god so so there's always those people who oppose god's children who who are pseudo intellectuals and then thirdly there's the people that are just spiritually dark you know there there are people in our world today politicians who are pulling triggers that are killing children around the world that are sitting innocently in their apartments and they're they're killing and they just don't even care they'll, they'll use religion they're claimed to be christians they're claimed to be they'll do whatever they've got to do to accomplish whatever agendas they particularly have they are just people who are spiritually dark and these people will always oppose the children of God. And that is the circumstances that we find that Nehemiah is in during this period of time. But, that, but there's also the reality of the contempt and the adversity of just life circumstances. One of my favorite books, well, it's not one of my favorite books, is, is, is the book of Job. And it is surmised that Job is the oldest book in the Bible, written thousands and thousands of years ago. And in Job chapter 5, verse 7, it says, But mankind is born for trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. Well, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I mean, what, 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 what a truer picture of the adversity of just living life that we see here in Scripture. And essentially what it's saying is, is we're born and the trouble starts. And, and one of the reasons, you know, as we grow older, all of a sudden we, we become more and more aware of our limitations. We become more and more aware that there are circumstances that you and I face in life that are overwhelming, that we're not enough. And so this, this passage in Job just says there are things like people and injustice and slander and gossip and betrayal and people who are just plain mean. And then there's illness and death that you and I have to deal with. My uh, wife and I, we have grandchildren that we love dearly. You know, grandchildren are such a, a blessing uh, to grandparents. Uh, you know, we, we get to love on them. We get to buy them sugary stuff. 
and uh, and then if they misbehave or they got a poopy diaper, we send them home. Uh, it's 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 a, it's a good it's a good experience. But we've got one grand, granddaughter has uh, uh, she's got juvenile myasthenia gravis, and this is a, it's a very rare disease and it's life debilitating. And she's lived with it for many, many years. She has to have massive infusions that take the whole day, uh, once a month. Uh, sometimes she can't breathe. She can't do any of the things that her sister does. And uh, the doctors have done literally everything they can do for her. They've done the surgeries. They've given her the medication. Uh, they're just kind of at, at wit's end. And, and sometimes we just feel like myasthenia gravis is just mocking us. We can do nothing as a grandmother and grandfather, not to mention her mother, but watch, watch our little Savannah suffer as she goes through, as she tries to press through her days. And, and the other night, every night when Heather and I go to bed, we, we pray together, and every night we pray for Judah, and every night we pray for Savannah, every night we pray for Karis, every night we pray for Haley, we pray for all of our grandkids, we have these specific prayers, and then, and then the other night as we were praying, all of a sudden I could hear my wife as she caught her breath. And she said, Lord, it seems like we've been praying forever for Savannah and nothing. There's, there's one doctor in, 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 in uh, Asheville, I mean in North Carolina, who deals with, with juvenile Mastina Gravis. And it so happens that she loved the mountains. And two years ago, that doctor moved from a major institution in Raleigh uh, to Asheville. And what a providential thing. God's grace that we got the best doctor, the only doctor in the state of North Carolina could deal with her. And then Mission last week fired her because she doesn't make enough money. Now, I'm not mad at Mission. I mean, you know, we know, you know, it's hospitals make money, and if they don't make money, and so all of a sudden this doctor was thrown in crisis, and, and, and now we've lost her doctor, and so there's only one other doctor now down in Winston-Salem, and my daughter called and said, hey, I need to get my daughter in to see that one doctor, and they said, well, children don't have myasthenia gravis. And she said, yes, they do. <laughs> my daughter has it. And she says, well, it's not on my computer. And if it's not on my computer, we can't get you in to see the doctor. I mean, sometimes, sometimes life circumstances, it can be a boss, it can be a mate, it can be a person that you work with, it can be a relative. I mean, it just seems like everything comes up against us and we're, we're facing these battles and we can't overcome these battles and we're overwhelmed by these battles and we pray and we pray and we pray and nothing happens it's like all life itself just kind of holds us in contempt so what does the psalmist do the psalmist says well my, our eyes are on you we're we're waiting on you this is what classically uh, theologians call being in god's waiting room and now i want to i want to tell i want to talk to you about being in god's waiting room the people of Israel prayed for 70 years and a whole generation died before God delivered Israel. But if you go back in, into the book of Genesis where God delivered the people of Israel, uh, they, had, they, were, they were slaves. And the Bible says this, God heard the prayers of his people and he delivered them. 
but he didn't deliver them for 400 years. So for 100 years, God's people prayed silence. For 100 more years, they prayed silence. For 100 more years, they prayed silence. For 100 more years, they prayed and God spoke and God did the miraculous and God intervened and God delivered them. But for 400 years, they sat in God's waiting room. You see, this psalm is written to those of you this morning that either have found yourself in God's waiting room, you're currently in God's waiting room, and you don't know it, but you soon will be in God's waiting room. What do you do? Well, Nehemiah uh, was experiencing something that you and I don't experience as Americans. We saw it in other cultures, and it's in history, the Patron system. You know, in Europe, if you were uh, somebody who was a gifted artist or a musician or even preachers, you, you would have to align yourself with a prince or a king to be under their authority and their protection in order to do what you did, lest somebody else would use you for their political advantage and maybe even kill you. And so you, you look to someone into that had authority to look over you, to get grant you their authority and to protect you. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He's, he's waiting and he's looking on God, to God, to act in, in, in this desperate situation. Let me give you a, a, couple of, a couple of truths before we leave this morning about God's waiting room. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, show us favor, Lord. Show us favor. I mean, verse 3, he's at a point where, like my wife, and praying and saying, Lord, how long? How long would this cancer continue? Lord, how, how long will I be in this state? How long will this, this child of mine be sick or be ill? Lord, how, how long will I live with this empty spot in, in my heart because my husband or a wife or I have a child who, who's no longer here? Lord, how long will I grieve? How long will I be empty? How long will I hurt? And he goes on and he says in his complaint, for we've had more than enough contempt. We've had more than enough scorn from the arrogant and contempt from the proud. And what he's saying is, you know, Lord, we've had it up to here. <laughs> now, don't you love it? The audacity of looking at the sovereign almighty God and saying, Lord, you know what? I've gone just about as far as I can. I've had it up to here with this. Because you are a child of God will not remove you, isolate you, or protect you from the struggles and sufferings of this life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not heaven. That's heaven. In this world, we face tribulation. Jesus was very clear about that. We would face difficulties. But there are three, three things that are takeaways that I want to remind you of this morning. Number one is God's timing isn't ours. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter was answering the question, why doesn't Jesus come back and deliver us from all this persecution? And Peter responded and said, Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you with the Lord. One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. So right now, my daughter and my wife and I are having to walk by faith that one day, one day, my God, my God, the sovereign king, will intervene, and he will heal my savannah. 
But you know what? If he doesn't do it in this life, he will heal my Savannah. She has trusted in Christ. She is a follower of Christ. Her hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. There will be a day when death will not reign over my Savannah. We have hope. Even in God's waiting room, we have hope. But there's a second thing that we need to take into account when we're in God's waiting room, and that is that God's gracious gift to us is peace under pressure. God gives you peace under pressure. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives your heart must not be troubled or fearful. And what, what Jesus was saying is, is the world, the peace of the world is, is there's instantaneous deliverance from whatever circumstances you can't control. All of a sudden, everything is all right. And Jesus made it clear that when you and I are under the authority and the provision and in the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the peace that he gives us will not always be immediate deliverance from whatever is pressing against us. But his presence will be with us, and in the midst of the storm, our Father gives us peace. There's nothing quite like the peace of God in the valley. There's nothing like the peace of God when you're facing a tsunami of troubles and you know that those tsunami, that tsunami of troubles is going to overwhelm you, that God's peace is going to carry you through that because he's done it so many times before. And Nehemiah is saying, I'm not going to move. We're not going to react. We're not going to do the wrong thing. I'm just looking for the hand of God. There will come a time in your life God will say to you, look, look. For some of, these some of these battles that we face, it will be look all the way up into the time that we meet him face to face. Sometimes there will be deliverance. I don't understand why God chooses to move when he chooses to move, but in faith I look. And then the last thing is this. And it's a strange thing, but it is the promise of God to be our rest, our rest. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, 11, 28 through 29, Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. You know, they say when a person falls overboard and they don't know how to swim, the reason they drown is because they struggle, they fight. If they just would relax, they'd have a much greater chance of survival. And so kind of in our culture, you and I are taught to struggle. We're taught to fight. But what we learn as God's children, there comes a point in time where the answer to the dilemma today is not to struggle and it's not to fight, it's to rest. It's to trust. It's to look to the hand of God, to look to the God, to the King who can. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of compassion. And he gives us rest in those times of difficulties and dilemma. Some of you have heard the stories of Corrie ten Boom. She and her family went through the uh, torture and the agony of the Nazi concentration camps. Her mother and father were killed by the Nazis. She watched a Nazi 
sergeant beat her sister to death. Later on, a few years after the war, that Nazi sergeant came to Corrie ten Boom and asked her for forgiveness. <laughs> she lived a difficult life, and at the end of her life, she penned some words that I've learned to live through in the storms that we go through. And these are those words. If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. But if you look to God, you will be at rest. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when your storm comes, look. Look to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together as we have studied your word. We thank you for the celebration of our mothers. We, again, know that for some that's a painful reality of departed mothers or maybe mothers who really weren't the type of mother they should have been. But, Father, we're grateful for the women that you've brought into our lives. I know that I am. But, Father, I'm most grateful for a God who gives me what I so desperately need when the storms are raging. Father, thank you for teaching me my youthful arrogance of your sufficiency. Thank you for teaching me that you are enough. Thanking you for teaching me that there is a resurrection that one day we will lay down these trials and tribulations and the God who watched over us, the God who cared for us, the God who was our peace, the God who was our rest, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And Father, on that day, we will in our weakness behold your glory, never to weep no more. And so, Father, while we are in your waiting room, we will worship you. We will praise you. You are worthy, Father. Father, I pray for men and women this morning who they're there. They're overwhelmed. It's too much. They've come to this place this morning and they feel so empty. They feel so tired. They've tried and they've tried and there's no answers and they're desperate. God, in the name of Jesus, let them experience your peace. Father, in their storm, Lord, in the name of Jesus, who calms the storm, calm their storm and be their rest. Thank you. We praise you. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we close today.